0: So with this coronavirus thing coming up and who knows what happens with it in our area and just the fear that's associated with, but then the cautionary, taking care of yourself, um, maybe we'll become a fist-bumping church, elbow-bumping. I mean, let's see what God does, and I'll try to keep you updated over over emails. um, And we'll be wise with things that go on with that. John chapter 2, verse 13. The theme of the book of John is what? It is Jesus is God. Believe and live. Weird experience last week. I went over to Bible Baptist Church and knew Joe was preaching over here, uh, the wedding at Cana. And I was doing Sunday school and then lunchtime. So. I was there for the service, and Pastor Rod gets up to preach, and he says, turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. Today we'll be studying the wedding at Cana. I'm like, that is, that's weird. So I talked to him afterwards. I said, are you going through the book of John? He said, no, I'm only preaching through four miracles in the book of John, and that's one we're on this week. We just started it this week. i like, that is really weird. <laughs> that's what's happening back at ABC. Um, so it was neat to be under the preaching of it and kind of keep keep it in my mind. I just, I find it fascinating. Like There's, a, there's some people that believe that it wasn't just the water in the, uh, the way the text is written, it wasn't just the water that was in the purification vessels that turned to wine, but that the actual well itself had turned to and he was telling them to draw it was actually the wine they were drawing out and putting in there and they drew from the well to bring in the master of the feast i don't know if that's true or not but i think what is pretty cool is that we're looking at the concept of jesus being the new wine that is better than the old wine and just the way that he chose to reveal himself with that miracle and the interactions that's going on that are going on with mary i mean jesus is unique it's cool to go through this series right after going through the book of Hebrews and just looking at the fact that Jesus is better. The reason why he is better is because he is God. I mean, we know what God deserves. And today we're going to look at the aspect of, of worship and that Jesus cleans up our worship. But We know that somebody that is such a being, so magnificent God himself, deserves our worship there's something inherent in our minds that click with that but as we go through the text today we're going to be challenged we're going to have our toes stepped on a bit as to who gets to dictate the parameters of how we worship when we worship i'm going to define worship as this and this is my definition as we go through it kind of just to simplify it for us so worship is this in my mind Paying attention to and praising God in ways that bring glory to him, both publicly and privately. Worship is paying attention to and praising God in ways that bring glory to him, both publicly and privately. And it's a relational thing, isn't it? So some of these things of paying attention to, I'm going to do that to people that I want to build a relationship with. I do praise them for things that they do, but not on the level of God. It's another level. It is seeking to bring glory to him and help him to feel and to know how far above us we believe he is. So Jesus enters this day and age where I think worship has become somewhat routine and established and the people have their way of doing things and we enter into this as Jesus and his disciples head to the temple for the first Passover that we're written about that he's a part of and here's what happens as he cleans up the worship of the temple verse 13 to 17 the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem The synoptic Gospels are when somebody takes together what is going on in each of the Gospels and kind of frames. You can actually get different copies of the Bible that puts the synoptics together and fills in all the details as you get to certain places. There is a debate as to what to do with this section. Is the cleansing of the temple recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Is it or is it not? There is a cleansing in the temple that's included. When does that happen? Remember? Passion week. So in Passion week, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And the authorities question him and then they plot to kill him. It's the beginning of the Passion week. Is this then? Some people say, well, yes, it is. And John is just inserting it way above and kind of taking his privilege to kind of set this thing up. I believe there were two I believe that Jesus initially gets and people don't necessarily know him this is the beginning of his ministry and he goes and sees what the temple has become and he is active in clearing it out and we'll see the response to him on that as they kind of question and are reasoning out who he is and then I believe that when he comes back again for a later passover feast and sees what's going on he thinks they still haven't learned the lesson and he repeats The act, and that's what the later the other Gospels record, and John chooses to record this one. At the end of the day, you can reason where you fall. I believe that this was one of two times, at least, when Jesus did a little clearing. So we're at the Passover. If you understand the Jews and the way they worshiped and what they did, all these feasts turned into these pilgrimages. These were these times that were set aside where you would take your family and do your duty and worship to God. There's a lot of sights, sounds, smells, experiences that as you were a child growing up, these things would have been vivid in your imagination. You'd be planning to take the trip, and it's not, hey, let's, let's pack up the family minivan and get our stuff and stop for gas a couple times in the way and food and everything we need. You had to plan ahead and have everything with you. And then you had the threats that would surround you on that trip. Why? Why? Because mean, evil people want your stuff. They know you're traveling with extra money. They know you're traveling with extra provisions. You probably are not traveling with your sacrifice. Can you imagine trying to bring an animal that far? The longest I've gotten Tuppence to take a hike is two and a half miles at our church camping trip when we kind of wandered a little bit out of the way. And she did a good job, but I eventually had to carry her for the rest of the way. I wouldn't want to carry a sheep. Or a goat. Or have to deal with the birds in their cages the whole trip. And then with thievery and stuff that can happen. So, what would you do? In order to keep your duty and sacrifice and worship to God, when you got to your destination, you would purchase that which you would use as your sacrifice. So the Passover, the Jews at hand, and people are heading in. So we get to 14. And you expect to find these things when you get there. Oxen. Sheep. And pigeons, necessary in the worship of God. And money changers, why are they there? Because the people would come and they'd support the temple with a temple tax. They would support the work of what was going on in the dwelling place of God with man. And they would need to change their money over to the currency that was used for that temple tax. Is it bad that we have sheep, oxen, pigeons, and money changers in Jerusalem during this Passover feast? No, it's not. They were needed. Here's the problem. Verse 14. Where are they found? In the temple. Here's where they were. So if you go into the temple and you were to make that trip, you would enter into the court of the Gentiles. This was an outer court area in the temple. For the Gentiles are non-Jews, those that were... Grafted in, or that by choice came into the family of God, non Jews that weren't born into it, this was the area for them to worship. They were not allowed to go any deeper into the temple. They couldn't go into the court of women. They couldn't go into the court of Israel. The only place for Gentiles to worship in the place where God's presence was found was in this court. How well do you think that was getting done? We, have a, we don't care about babies crying and kids being kids in our time during our, our singing and we're doing that. But imagine in first Sunday of the month, I was away for that one. First Sunday of the month, we have them all in here as we're teaching as well. You know how distracting it can get at times? But it's okay. We know it's okay. We want them to follow Jesus. Now imagine if you're trying to worship God. We brought a few sheep in here, a few goats, some Pigeons, some cattle, and people transacting business. That would get distracting. And here they are trying to worship God in the place they're supposed to be worshiping God, and they can't carry it out. Good thing we have meek and mild Jesus to come in, and say, can I make some suggestions? Can I give you some ideas? I, I hate when Jesus is pictured as that. He's not a vigilante zealot revolutionary that's gonna overthrow Rome. But neither is he a passive, soft spoken, meek, mild, not wanting to create waves, individual. So what is the meek and mild response that the meek and mild Jesus will have? Look at the beginning of verse 15. And making a whip of cords. This is premeditated. <laughs> this isn't Jesus just seeing and responding. And oh, he's, he normally has control of his temper, but occasionally when something provokes him, he just goes into this rage. So, how the disciples would describe him? I think not. So Jesus sits down and he thinks, I'm doing something. So he makes this whip of cords. I can't think of any other way to get oxen and sheep out of somewhere. So in making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Whether the whip of cords were used on just the sheep and oxen or some other people as well, I don't know. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons cuz obviously they're in cages take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade now some like to speculate and they say the thing that Jesus really was angry about is that the high priests and the religious leaders were seeking to bring about a profit through this. So they were setting exorbitant prices and high exchange rates, and that is completely founded on nothing. He doesn't say these things are not to happen at all around this place. He says these things are not to happen in the worship place of God. The disciples are reminded of something when they talk about it in verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That is Psalm 69, verse 9. Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. What is bugging Jesus? Best way I can seek to explain it is Wawa. Why does Wawa have hoagies? Besides the fact that they're amazing and so much better than sheets. Why do people buy them? It's convenient. What is Wawa? It is a convenience store. What is 7 Eleven? Convenience store, sheets. Convenience. Who is it convenient for? Convenient for the shoppers. The things are there because the owners know that if you place lots of things that people might need or want in close proximity to each other, that once you get them in your doors, you'll have all kinds of things that are convenient. And you can be like, I need this, I need that, I stop for gas, I'm hungry, so I grab a hoagie because that's convenient. And then you go ahead and take advantage of the convenient things that have been set up for you. A convenience store. Making it easier for people. And because you make it easier for people, it means more money for you. Because if we know one thing about Americans is that we don't like to stand in line. We don't like to go to more than one place. And we don't have to unless you're an extreme couponer. And then you go to five or six places. But even then, it's just fun and you derive some pleasure out of it. But you like convenience. You like going places and conveniently picking something else up. It's why you go to a grocery store and there's way more than groceries there. Because if it's convenient, you're going to take the path of least resistance and get that thing there. Jesus is upset because worship has been about convenience. So here they are, they're going to the temple to worship God, and the reason why people are set up in the court of Gentiles is because there's a market there. Because people don't want to go out of their way farther than the temple grounds to get what they need for worship. So if it takes less time to do it there, they will do it there because it's convenient. That is what Jesus is upset about, because they've tarnished the worship of God to make worship more convenient to them. I don't think in any definition of worship you can include the word convenient. How convenient is it? for you to come and publicly worship God. How convenient was it for these people to take a trip from their home to be involved in this feast? It is not convenient at all. Paying attention to and praising God in ways that bring glory to Him publicly and privately is never convenient. So what he is teaching and what he is doing is that worship both public and private is never about the worshippers Convenience. It is about the one whom you worship. We as Americans understand this and grasp this significantly. We cater to ourselves and our wants and our le- leisure so often. All of us, at the end of the day, would say, would like the things that surround our life and the things that we need and want to be conveniently accessible. To us, And that stands in stark contrast to what true worship is. Meeting as a church family to publicly worship God, it wasn't convenient to get up an hour earlier. It wasn't convenient for a team of people, thank you by the way, to get up even earlier than the last team of people did the week before to come and set up so that we could publicly worship worship and make that happen and facilitate for us wasn't convenient wasn't convenient to get ready in the morning and come here and get in the car and expend gas and effort and time to meet together but true worship normally, never is It's not going to be convenient to tease out John 4.24 and determine in your life what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth and live that out in your life and intentionally find ways that bring glory to God as you spend time in that relationship praising Him and worshiping Him. The determination that you come to is that worshiping God in spirit and in truth privately is never going to equal convenience. Not only do we tend to cater to ourselves and our wants and our leisure so often, we create systems that distract from true worship. Not every church that assembles on Sunday focuses on Jesus. I mean, Jesus is in the tagline or mission statement somewhere, but so often it's not about him. So often the focus is put on man and, hey, look at me. We draw attention and we use devices to make things convenient both for the worshipers and those that are leading in worship. I think there's a broader application to that. I remember both in the past congregation I served in, and thankfully I don't think too often here, if ever. I've seen people that the job that they do is a public service job or a job in the community that people tend to take advantage of, whether it's a lawyer, doctor, chiropractor, go on the list. And I've seen people make decisions on the church family that they worship God with based on how many people are there that might take advantage of their services and networking because they're there. I've seen it. I question it and ask, what's that for? Now I know that we have people in our church family that do different businesses and jobs that people here take advantage of. I'm about that. It's fine to take advantage of things that people are, are connected to and I want nobody to be fearful of putting out who they are or what they do. But here's not the place. This place is reserved for, for the worship of God, we create relationships. We're going to know what each other do and what we're involved in. And I'm so thankful that I have never seen an instance here where people have used our setting and our church family as a platform to grow our business, probably because that'd be terrible strategy. <laughs> this is not the place you would go. So praise the Lord for that, but I've seen it happen. So here we are, and Jesus says, you've intended to make worship convenient and that is not okay so there's an obvious response to him in this activity that he's been involved with in his meek and mild way the question then would be the question that the jews ask in verse 18 as they challenge who is this one that makes demands on how god is to be worshipped and they say this so the jews said to him What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus is going to give an answer that essentially says his authority to dictate worship's parameters is based on, of all things, his future resurrection. So they ask for this sign. What are they asking for? I mean, they're asking for a sign because they think that maybe he is a prophet. But isn't there a step that they're missing if he could be a prophet? When a prophet speaks throughout the Old Testament is involved, when John the Baptist is proclaiming the come of Jesus, what is to be the first response of anybody that has heard the word of God through the vehicle that God has used to bring them that word? The first response should be self-reflection and evaluation. It's not a sitting back and saying, well, prove it that you have the authority. It's a listening to. Maybe they should have listened to what Jesus just did. They should self-reflect and evaluate and say, maybe he's got a point that this has become about the convenience of the worshipers instead of the glory of the one that is worshipped. And maybe there's a little bit of discreditation there as well. Who are you? That's what we try to do, right? Right? I mean, if somebody really gets into your life and confronts you about a sin that they have seen, and they do so even out of love and encouragement, often our first response is, who do you think you are? Or maybe in the delivery of a sermon and I get to an application and it really steps on your toes, and you're like, who does Rick think he is? May we do that. If you don't want to accept something, your first step normally is, "Who does that person and who gave them authority? Then we get to verse 19 and 21 in Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, So this is what it sounds like to this assembly of Jews, which I think is composed of the leaders that are accountable for the, for the temple worship. So what they hear is this. They hear this as a challenge. They hear this as Jesus saying, go ahead, knock it all down. I'll build it up in three days. Well, for one thing, them knocking it down would be a capital offense. It's a capital offense in Greco-Roman world to destroy or desecrate the temple. And how in the world would this being, this man who cleared things out in three days, build it up again? Well, we know that Jesus is not talking about that because we have verse 21 and John speaking to us and telling us what Jesus is doing. So here's what Jesus knows. And this is, he is the only one that knows us at this point. He knows that he has replaced the temple and its worship. So the tabernacle, the tent, first the pillar and the cloud as they left Egypt. Then the tabernacle tent. And then the permanent temple. What were all these created to do, to be? The dwelling place of God with man. The place where you met God in relationship. There's a transition that's taking place here. Jesus is saying... Not just in cleaning up worship, but now saying the dwelling place of God with man no longer is the temple. It now resides in him. Some try to say that this is referring to the church, because you know the body of Christ, but there's a problem. We don't have the church yet. And the church wasn't destroyed. And never was. So in verse, when he's saying that destroy this temple, he's talking about himself and the embodiment of who he is. He's talking about his resurrection. What's phenomenal to me is that's an even bigger sign than if the temple was knocked down and him completing it in three days and bringing it back up. He is raising from the dead. Look at the faith that is bolstered in the disciples based on Jesus' words and actions when they finally, and you'll see this a lot, (laughs) the book of Acts is when things start to click and the disciples start to get things after following Jesus for a number of years. When he's raised from the dead, they remember this event, and it bolsters their belief in Scripture and in Jesus' words. One of my favorite, probably my favorite kind of humor is when, whether it's somebody that's a a funny individual or not, or somebody that's a stand-up comic, when they deliver some punchlines and some jokes, and then later on, a long time later, they circle back and hit it again in a way that only those that have been paying attention get it, and everybody else is like, huh? I don't get it. What's he saying there? I love that kind of humor. The kind of humor where you can finally come to and you're like, oh, I got, when they set it all up. And this, to me, is Jesus' humor, Jesus' teaching mechanism, where he's going to say things, and he does that throughout the book of John, and they get it later, and they circle back and they say, Oh, that's marvelous. That's amazing the way he said that, the way he taught that, and it came true. So Jesus lays out his authority based on his future resurrection. So imagine you're at your workplace tomorrow, Monday morning blues because you lost sleep this week because you assembled with your church family. You're going into work, and somebody comes into your workplace, and they start giving you instructions on how to do your job. You've never seen this person before? and you've been working there for a while, what do you do? Some of you are so meek and mild-mannered, you're like, anybody can tell me anything to do, and I'm just going to do it the way they tell me to do it. Model employees. I Man, you're going to do the same thing that I would do. You're going to challenge them. Who are you to tell me what to do? And if they respond with, well, I'm the owner. You just haven't met me yet. What do you do? You do everything they told you to do in the manner they told you to do it because they are the boss's boss. They are the owner, and you want to keep your job. What is Jesus doing? Who is he to demand how worship should be done? He's the owner. He's the one that has the authority to dictate how worship is done. And to show them, yes, through riddle now, that they will understand later, that he is now both the dwelling place of God with man, and he will prove by raising from the dead that he is God. He has the authority to tell you how worship is done, how life brings glory to God. So who dictates that in your life? How we publicly, how we privately worship God. Is it you? Shouldn't it be, should it? Is it God? If you answer, if somebody were to give you a true false statement to measure your spiritual health, and the statement is, worship is convenient to me, the wrong answer would be true. If worship is convenient for you and you answer true with that, then you aren't worshiping as you should be worshiping both public and private worship is inconvenient then we get beyond jesus authority to Jesus' knowledge in verse 23 to 25 now when he was in jerusalem at the passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man So Jesus knows whether or not a heart truly believes and follows him. So verse 23 is saying that many are believing because of signs. Jesus is doing amazing things. So they're believing that there's something about Jesus that is unusual and they are following him. As long as they can continue to see the magic show and the amazing things that he's doing. It doesn't say anywhere that true repentance happens. That they grasp fully who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he had to come to do it because of who they are. So they aren't committed to him as a person or his teaching. They're coming along as long as he continues to do signs. We're going to find out later that it doesn't take much to shake them away. And then we come to verse 24 and 25 and this entrusting thing. Because Jesus knows hearts. So it's teaching that Jesus knows the hearts of men and knew who of those who followed had truly trusted him so that he could entrust of himself to them. Jeremiah 17.10 speaks of that. I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Jesus knows the heart of his followers. He knows ours. So what is it teaching in there? I mean, think about it just in in your life. How much of yourself do you show to those people in your life that you would label as acquaintances, co-workers? I mean, they probably don't see a side of you that those that you would label as close friends, as family, would see, right? There's a part where you reserve a part of yourself And show it only to those that you know, love you in relationship, and are close to you. They see your true self. You let your guard down. You let your hair down. You be your true weird self, whatever that may be. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, you want to get to know me, then trust me first. Believe in me. Follow me with no conditions. With no, hey, if it's convenient for me, with no, only if it's in this way and you go this direction. He says, if I know your heart and I know that you are open to me and trusting in me, you will see me in ways that no one else will. Some of you here, if you haven't gotten to know the true Jesus, it's because you've never trusted him. If he is not real to you, if your heart does not melt in relationship to him, if you don't read scripture, if you aren't amazed by who he is and getting to know him, maybe it's a facade. Maybe it's because this is only a religion of convenience for you instead of a relationship of love and inconvenience. You're either for Jesus in your following or you're for yourself. Jesus knows your heart. Those who truly follow Him, He will truly entrust with Himself. Those who do not will never experience what it is to truly know Jesus. Worship that is convenient is not worship. Worship by its very nature demands sacrifice. So here's my question to you. How will you pay attention to and praise God in ways that bring glory to him publicly and privately? Jesus wants to clean up your worship this week. He wants you to worship and follow in his way. He wants to take the things that you are only doing because of convenience and say, no, that's not worship. Let me clear it out. You want to worship me? Worship me when it's inconvenient. Follow me when it doesn't make sense. When there is an expenditure of time and energy. That is worship. Paying attention to and praising God is inconvenient, but it's awesome. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are worthy of our worship. Thank you for these reminders. God, we need these in our culture that creates convenience for us everywhere. Help us to be inconvenient true worshipers. Help us to delight in you so much that we look at how you want to clean up our lives and teach us how to worship you publicly and privately in ways that bring glory to you. Help us to pay attention to you and what you're doing. Draw our hearts to you. Help us to know you and be committed to the point where we can know you. Help us to trust you fully and experience you more. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to be dismissed with the end of Hebrews. The end of Hebrews says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.